and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute. A Home Secretary under huge pressure, a Prime Ministerial U-turn and an MP ridiculed for signing up for a reality TV show. It all sounds like politics has returned to normal. Well, after the tumultuous last few months in Westminster, maybe anything would seem normal. But Rishi Sunak's first week as Prime Minister has not been entirely plain sailing. His Home Secretary has endured a brutal first week in her new old job, but so far she's surviving. The PM still needs to find a lot of money to fill a big fiscal black hole, and what will that mean for civil service job cuts? And Labour are still far ahead in the polls, but where does the new Sunak government leave Keir Starmer and his party? To discuss all this, I'm delighted to be joined by IFG pod stalwart and senior fellow Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Hannah. And also joining us today is senior researcher Rhys Klein. Hi, Rhys. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined for his IFG podcast debut uh, by The Mirror's new political editor, John Stevens. Hi, John. Hi, Hannah. You were at The Mail before. How have you found the transition to The Mirror? Well, it's been quite a change. I was at the mail for 12 years. So I think if you were anywhere for that long, you're quite institutionalised to suddenly do things quite differently. Um, So yeah, I think it was always going to be pretty, quite a change. But obviously, the last few weeks have been made it even more intense. So yeah, it is rather different from my old job. Very similar in some ways, but very different in other ways. And first up, I have to ask you about the political story which is consuming Westminster, which is, of course, Matt Hancock going into the jungle. Um, do you think this could work out for him in the end? I think in Matt Hancock's mind, he thinks it will work out for him because he obviously has a very positive opinion about himself. And I think he just feels that if the public just saw the real Matt Hancock, they'd fall in love with him and see how amazing he is. I'm sure there were other factors as well. I'm sure he's getting a big check. We obviously know he's going through a divorce at the moment, so that may come in handy. But I think, essentially, he probably feels a bit hard done by, but he got blamed for a lot of things that went wrong with COVID. He obviously left government after this big row about what went on with Gina Colodangelo. And I feel that he thinks that, yeah, if he just goes on TV, all these millions of people will fall in love with him and think how brilliant he is. I think there's plenty of people in Westminster who feel slightly differently about Matt Hancock and feel it may not work out quite so well. I thought the most interesting thing actually was a revelation in one of the stories today saying he may be a bit inhibited in what he can do in the jungle because he'd been on celebrity SAS Who Dares Win. <laughs> so clearly he's <laughs> shopping around for any celebrity show going. Yes, yeah, apparently he's got, he's got trench foot or something. Is uh, That was yeah. the story. But anyway, we wait to, we wait to see or not see in my case because... Uh, absolutely not going to watch. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, so until Matt Hancock signed up for his jungle adventure, uh, the big story in Westminster was Suella Braverman. The recently resigned, even more recently reinstated Home Secretary has been under pressure on multiple fronts, criticised for forwarding an official document to her personal email account, and now uh, for overcrowding at the Manston Migrant Processing Centre in Kent. John, does the lobby smell blood? I think it does smell blood, but it knows that it might take a bit of time for that wound to turn into something that means that she is gone from the job. I mean, I think it was interesting what you said about politics going back to normal. Things seem to be moving all so fast. And when Suella Bravman left that job, 
I mean, whenever it was a couple of weeks ago now, everything happened so quickly. So we came out of Prime Minister's questions, suddenly Liz Truss cancelled a visit and then or it suddenly turned out Suella Bravan was leaving and then the letters were published and bam, 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 quickly moved on. There was so much going on at the time. Liz Truss seemed to be in free fall. I can remember writing the story for the Mirror. Obviously, we're more compact on space than other papers. And I was having to combine the end of Liz Truss and rising food prices and Suella Bravman and like seven other things in one story. And then Liz Truss left and then we all just moved on and it went moved so quickly. Whereas this week has been much more normal. The story's kind of, the fact that it's got room to breathe. People have had time to dig on different elements and so, yeah, I think that has been, it's kind of got the space that it didn't get at the time. It's suddenly now getting a lot of focus on her. And then there are so many different elements that journalists can go at. You can look at the Manston side. You can look at what did she do when she was attorney general, all these allegations about leak inquiries that she was involved in. She is obviously also quite a character. You saw that in the Commons Chamber this week when she did quite a good job of distracting from her problems by using the language saying that Britain was facing invasion of asylum seekers and that meant the story went up that cul-de-sac for 24 hours so yeah there's loads of different bits to go at it I think that she is in trouble but for the time being the one thing that really is on her side is Rishi Sunak is in the trench with her that naturally Rishi Sunak and Suella Bravman aren't natural bedfellows they're not from the same bits of the party I think Rishi Sunak it was quite handy for him to have Suella Braverman in the cabinet. I think over the long term, it's possibly not so handy. But for the time being, he can't really push her overboard yet because there are already questions about his judgment bringing her back. If he had to get rid of her so soon, I think that would really look like his government was in crisis. I think it's more likely that something comes up in a few months, maybe a disagreement over policy, maybe there are more allegations. And then I think it would be easier for Richard Sunak to say, okay, enough is enough, you're going to have to go. That's really interesting what you say about how quickly the the issue of her going, the issues around her going under truss were sort of passed over. And I wonder whether that maybe contributed to, to Rishi Sunak thinking, you know, oh, it'd be fine to put her back because nobody sort of made that much fuss about it at, at the time. But do you think he should have anticipated the reaction we've seen? <sighs> Well, I think so. I think I think there is something that what you say that they did think, oh, we can do this. It will just be fine and everyone will move on and we'll be a new government and there'll be loads of other things for people to talk about. But there just hasn't really. And I think, yeah, the problems at Manston have meant that it has stayed at the top of the agenda, that it hasn't gone away. If it was just one element of the story and it, we were still just talking about the leaking, I think it would have blown over. But because there's so many different bits and Manston just seems to be getting worse and worse, yeah, it's just not going away. I mean, there is a bit of a problem, I think, for Rishi Sunak because he made so much in both his pitch for the leadership and in those first remarks on Downing Street about how his government was going to be different from Boris Johnson's. And you have those words that I think people like the Institute for Government will be constantly throwing at the government of is going to be a government characterised by integrity, professionalism and accountability at all levels. And I think his claim to this is a government of integrity took a sort of instant blow from but for you know what may or may not be political reasons, I've rehabilitated instantly someone who had to go over a breach of the ministerial code. It's just not a just not a good look. Down the line, he may be able to sort of turn to the 
you know, Suella Bravman's supporters in the party were out in force on Monday for her statement. I thought it was really interesting that the you know, no other ministers outside Home Office ministers turned up with the one exception of Steve Baker yeah. as the sort of gal lighter of the ERG there, making sure that everything, uh, everybody was there. And there was a lot of support for her from a section of the party on the back benches. But down the line, you sort of think maybe the Sunak narrative becomes, well, look, I gave her a go, but actually, you know, I just can't keep her in the government because of X, Y and Z. And you might think based on track record, there would be enough X, Ys and Zs that if you wanted to move her on, you'd have a pretext in the not too distant future. And you could see that when, if he did a deal with her to get her support, when her, her support came in, it was crucial to him. He had the threat of Boris Johnson. He had the threat of Penny Morden. It was that key weekend on did he face a leadership contest or not. I'm just not sure that, there are people who back Suella. There is a group in the ERG um, who clearly very keen to have her there at the top table of government in one of the great offices of state. But what is the real danger if he did have to get rid of her over some scandal? They're not really going to bring down Rishi Sunak immediately, are they? You're not suddenly going to reach a threshold on letters and changing rules. I think that... In a few months' time, if she did something, you got rid of her. I'm sure you, you might get Steve Baker walking out of government as well. You would get some people on that side of the party causing a lot of noise, but you're not really going to see them oust Rishi Sunak. I just think he needed her on his way in, but if he gets rid of her, they're not going to successfully get rid of him, especially because it would make the Tory party look a complete joke, literally going through leaders again and again and again, which they already look, but if they did it within a few months, I mean, come on, it would be uh, ridiculous. And Jill, um, as John was saying, the um, one of the issues, there are many issues around, around the Brotherman uh, situation. One of them is about the leaking um, and the use of private email. The IFG published a paper back in March about the sort of, potential problems around the use of WhatsApp in government. But many of the same issues around sort of security and so on do apply to, to use of private email, don't they? Yes. And I think uh, I think this is one of the areas where clearly the rules haven't really caught up with what's happened. So Ella Bravman's defence is she needed to forward emails to her private phone, the six instances, rather than the one that she sent on to John Hayes to say, have a look at what I'm being forced to say, um, or whatever she was doing when she sent it on to John Hayes. But the one she was sending to her private email, her reason was that when she had to do online meetings, she couldn't both be in a Teams call or whatever system the government uses and be reading documents on her screen. So she needs to do that. So I think it's just a further illustration that some of the rules about government and maybe some of the equipment we provide ministers, maybe she should have two secure phones so she can forward one to the other or a better screen arrangement. Uh, haven't really kept pace with you know technological advance, the way people do business these days. We saw that with WhatsApp in government where, you know, by and large, WhatsApp has substituted for what would have been informal chats in corridors or calls. Uh, but WhatsApps, of course, have the added advantage that someone vaguely malevolent can always screenshot your messages and share them with the lobby <laughs> and do. So I think, you know, this is one of the things where you would hope that one of the things Richie Sunak might do uh, in setting his sort of squeaky clean professional government is have a look at all of those things and say, actually, what do we need to make sure that we're running a government that looks as though it's operating in 2022 rather than the uh, late 1990s? And of course, one of the other things we said in that paper was uh, about how ministers make use of their 
personal phones, and we've seen this uh, question about uh, Liz Truss's phone being 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 compromised and that being um, covered up. That's also that's also an issue where you know maybe the rules haven't kept pace with the practices that politicians are are turning to in order to try to get the job done. Yes, and I think one of the things that we've seen is that uh, that all these ministers are being offered security briefings, which will say, "Don't take your phone to potentially hostile countries. Be careful what business you transact." on them because there's always a possibility of spyware and things like that. But I mean, you get a sense that people will still do that. And I mean, it's quite interesting, you know, should Liz Truss be using her government official phone to be plotting against the Prime Minister with Kwasi Kwarteng, or should that be on? <laughs> it's quite an interesting grey area of what yeah. is work <laughs> and what is uh, what is private business. I don't think Boris Johnson would have put that in the uh, you know part of your ministerial duties box if anyone had asked. But I think being aware of vulnerability and cyber vulnerability is clearly something that's going to have to be in the sort of day one briefing now for every minister going into office. And, and Jill, our colleague Kath Haddon wrote a piece this week arguing that one of the problems which, which Sunak is facing in dealing with Brubman issue is that he hasn't appointed an independent uh, advisor on ministerial standards. What difference would that make? Well, the big plus, uh, as Kath argued, of having an independent advisor is that it ceases to be Sunak's problem. It's only Sunak's problem when the investigation comes back to him. He outsources the, you know, documenting what happened uh, to the independent advisor. And then we'll get some dispassionate advice, uh, we hope. And we hope that unlike his predecessor, he will probably pay quite a lot of attention to that advice. So in a sense, it brings in a more objective third party, unlike Liz Truss, who said, I don't need an independent advisor. I'm a very ethical person, which Sunak did commit during the Conservative leadership campaign, though we do know that he is reviewing all those pledges, but this is one he shouldn't review. Uh, He did commit to appointing an independent advisor, and he probably ought to get on with it. I think what happened was that I think both Liz Truss, uh, that Liz Truss rather assumed that the only role of the independent advisor was to keep the prime minister in line, which is how it had evolved under Boris Johnson because of the numerous transgressions there, rather than be seen as actually an incredibly helpful way for the prime minister to uh, deal with potential transgressions by his colleagues. I think Rishi Sunak <laughs> may May uh, we may assume under Rishi Sunak that the majority of the transgressions would be by colleagues rather than by him himself. That would certainly be the impression he would want to give of his premiership as a contrast to Boris Johnson's. And Reese, the other obvious um, significant part of the, of the difficulties that uh, Solar Brabham has been facing has been around government policy on immigration and asylum. What's gone wrong there? Yeah, well, the, the stories this week have, have demonstrated quite a few uh, sort of interconnected problems with the asylum system. I mean, they started, as you said, with the reports of overcrowding and, and poor conditions and long waits at the Manston uh, Centre with questions being raised about uh, whether that uh, was attributable to a direct decision by the Home Secretary to prevent people from being transferred to hotel and other accommodation. And if so, whether that contravened legal advice. Um, but one contributing factor to that problem is, of course, the 
expanding number of, of people arriving by small boats. Um, we're now nearly at 40,000 arrivals this year, forecasted to reach about 60,000 by the end of the year. That in itself is about double last year. Uh, uh, and of course, the, the, the government's Rwanda scheme is uh, stuck under judicial review in, in response to that. And uh, we're yet to see the, the fruit of negotiations with France. But finally, that that sort of problem of small boats is itself contributing to the bigger problem or the other problem, which is the ever-expanding asylum backlog. Um, We've had about a sort of 300% increase in the number of people waiting for an asylum decision uh, since 2017, and that has far outstripped the uh, increase in asylum applications, which has grown by about 130% in the same time. And... (laughs) To what extent is this a failure of the of the sort of system to adjust for the the new realities of of migration now that the UK has left the EU? Yes, well, I mean, we see quite a variety of factors at play. Um, so one is there is debate about the the number of decision makers in the Home Office, and the department is hiring more decision makers. Um, but we also see the uh, questions about the experience and the retainment of those decision makers. Churn is very high. Um, they also tend to be fairly junior staff. They're executive officers. They used to be higher executive officers. Um, uh, and there's questions about the training and support of those staff, also the IT systems they use. So there's all sorts of factors at play that go beyond just the sort of rate of application. And so that's been reflected in a sort of massive slowdown in the number of decisions being made, which, uh, you know, so you cut staff, you might now build it up, but because you've got lots of inexperienced staff, they make decisions more slowly. So yeah, we, we, we've seen a, a, a we see that productivity rate, the rate of decision making is about half what it was in uh, 2017, I think. And so looking ahead to the autumn statement, um, what choices might the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt face if he wants to fix this problem? Well, there's, I think there's a couple of questions here. Firstly, um, as we've heard throughout this week, the backlog needs to be cleared. And yes, that means hiring more decision makers. Um, and as we've just mentioned, it also means better training, better systems, mm. better retainment. Now, all of that costs money. Um, it sounds like we're expecting public spending cuts following the autumn statement. So all eyes will be on what resources the Home Office has or doesn't have to try and address that problem in the coming years. And then the other related question, of course, at the autumn statement is that of sort of wider immigration policy. And we, we know about the row reported between Braverman and, and, and Trust before their dual resignations over whether or not to, to liberalise immigration rules in a bid to uh, sort of boost economic growth. And that tension remains. So that will be a, a key question for the autumn statement. And there's something sort of specific here. One of my colleagues I was just uh, talking to this um, deals with migration policy was saying that actually we've never dealt with, you know, when backlogs emerge and they've emerged before in the early 2000s, in the early 2010s, we tend to deal with that by having a sort of regularization scheme. So you effectively knock off the backlog by letting people in. Now, is that an option this government would consider? And quite interesting, there are a number of people who are pressing for things like letting asylum seekers work earlier by saying we have labour shortages, we keep people in asylum from working until they've been here for 12 months, suggestions I think that should go down to six months. So if at least you're here, rather than be a burden on the taxpayer, could you actually be contributing a bit more to the economy? But does that then make the UK an even more attractive destination? So I think it's quite interesting to see whether the government is capable of having 
a really rational internal debate about what is prepared to do and what levers it will pull to get on top of this? Uh, or does it actually prefer to keep it sort of weaponized? And maybe this is one for John, uh, something that you can sort of say, well, at least we're trying to deal with it and we're tough. And some lines Rishi Sunak was coming up yesterday, uh, you know, you're not Keir Starmer and Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, I think that worked for some extent. That obviously we know when they announced the Ranza plan, a lot of people were saying that part of the whole point of it, they didn't really care whether it worked or not. It was here's a wedge issue with Labour, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is fine. But when you just get the problem having a lot more focus on it, it now has a lot more news value. I think we'd always see that if you have the problem at Manston, where you've got young children being kept behind barbed wire fences awful conditions that's obviously always going to be a big news story but combine that with the suella braverman element and it just raises it to a whole nother level i think you do get to the point where yeah a lot of the public do think yes hooray pretty patel or whoever talking tough on immigration boo the labor party etc etc you do get to a point where you do need to start sorting these issues out and i think people start to think hang on a minute, this is just rhetoric. You have been in government for 12 years. This is your mess now that you do need to create, uh, to sort out. And I think it only gets you so far before people start to see through that and think "Mm, you do need to actually get these things sorted. Right, let's leave the rough and tumble of Westminster politics behind and pick up on something which has started to come into the into the discussion, very IFG uh, territory. That's the shape and size of the civil service and the decisions that the government wants to make about that. So the previous Prime Minister, Liz Truss, for those who are struggling to keep up, um, had pledged to get rid of 91,000 civil servants. But Rishi Sunak has now adjusted that position. Rhys, can you talk us through what Sunak said? Yes. So the headline is that he has... Uh, dropped the 91,000 uh, reductions target, and he has cancelled the planned suspension of the civil service graduate fast stream. Um, in, a, in a letter to civil servants this week, he deployed some uh, IFG greatest hits and uh, uh, said that he did not believe that top-down targets for civil service headcount uh, were the right way to cut the civil service, and instead said that uh, he would expect departments to look for the most effective ways to secure value and efficiency for, uh, within departmental budgets in the longer term. And we've got a new IFG paper out uh, by our colleague uh, Alex Thomas this week, which says that um, thinking about the problem in this way is, is the right approach. Yes, we argue, Alex in his paper argues that uh, headcount targets are the wrong approach uh, because they, well, they firstly, they don't give much control to departments to decide where those cuts should fall. They tend to fall where vacancies just happen to arise um, and they often therefore lead to, to better, more mobile staff leaving first. Um, and they also create a lot of false economies. They incentivize departments to um uh, cut where it's possible to reduce posts, even if it creates more expenditure elsewhere in consultancy spend and that sort of thing. The fast stream stop was a, a prime example of that. Um, Alex, in his paper, argues, therefore, instead that, that, in his words, they should target pounds, not people, that it should be a, a budgetary approach incorporated in the wider attempt to reduce uh, public spending cuts uh, following the autumn statement. And it sounds like that's the approach Sunak is, is uh, moving towards. Joe, what, what what do you think the sort of political risks are around the the civil service job cut issue? 
I think a lot of people in the public don't really care and it's just one of those issues where their eyes glaze over until they're waiting for their passport or until there are thousands of people stuck in a migrant processing centre and the government ends up being taken to court over it. And I think that shows why some of these targets just seem so short-sighted that, yeah, you can sit in number 10 and say, yeah, whack all these numbers off and get rid of it. And then when you actually come to it, you just talk about how the Home Office bringing all these people back in to start making decisions. It's quite difficult. And you just look at the practicalities of it that Liz Truss committed to that when she was in the Tory leadership race. But when it was Boris Johnson who announced it, Liz Truss is one of the people who wrote a letter, I can't remember if it was to Boris Johnson or someone else, ends up getting leaked where she was like, yeah, yeah, do it in all these other departments. Mm-hmm. We can't do it in the Foreign Office because I've got this special case that I need these people. And so, yeah, when it's your department and you're suddenly losing people, it's much more difficult to do than when you're in number 10 making these big pledges to get front page headlines on certain newspapers. And what do we know about the the new Cabinet Office Minister who's in, going to be sort of overseeing this, Oliver Dowden? Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure what he's not really set out his plans on this. We know that when he was at Culture, he turned into a bit of a woke warrior, that he was quite good at chasing headlines. Um, He did seem to be quite good at playing that game, but I'm not quite sure what his plans are for the civil service and how exactly he's going to shape things. I mean, presumably in in that role, Jill, he's going to have to do a lot of brokering between different departments. I mean, I think that's probably why Rishi Sunak has put him there. I mean, Oliver Dowden is known as one of Rishi Sunak's sort of closest chums in government, uh, potentially the person that Rishi Sunak would have made chancellor if he'd had a free hand and not sort of had uh, a one-week-old Jeremy Hunt who'd been prepared earlier. So <laughs> I think it's sort of quite interesting to see, you know, does he take on that big enforcer role? Because one of the things we've been talking about is the extent of the leap that Rishi Sunak has to make to become Prime Minister. And one of the things you do want as a Prime Minister is not to have to do all the knocking heads together yourself. You want a trusted ally who doesn't want your job, instantly at least, uh, to be there to chair quite a lot of cabinet committees for him. We haven't got the new cabinet committee list, I don't think, to see how much of that Oliver Dowden is doing, to sort of broker deals and someone who can really represent you in lots of discussions with colleagues saying, no, this is what the Prime Minister wants, without you having to use all your Prime Ministerial capital up in doing that all yourself. So whether Oliver Dowden has come there with a big agenda around the civil service, I think we'll have to wait for a bit of time. Maybe he'll have to be invited back to Ditchley to do Ditchley Revisited next summer. And he also, he comes with experience from the Cabinet Office doing implementation in the past. So that will serve him well in this sort of question of civil service cuts and workforce planning if he chooses to lean into that over the sort of culture war points that, that you mentioned. And he worked John. to number 10 under David yeah. Cameron, didn't yeah. he? So. Well, maybe he'd like to come to the IFG and, and set out his plans here. Yeah. So, having spent so much of the last weeks and months talking about the Conservative Party's psychodrama, we wanted to take a few minutes to look at His Majesty's opposition. Liz Truss's woes saw Labour build up a phenomenal poll lead. So is the next election Labour's to lose? John, there's that famous Roy Jenkins quote of Tony Blair in the run-up to the 1997 general election of of being like a man carrying a priceless Ming vase across a highly highly polished floor. Is that where Starmer is now? I think that Starmer is having to completely recalibrate 
what he's doing and the attacks. I mean, from one side, just stylistically, which is, you know, it's very different to Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, you're seeing that at Prime Minister's Questions. The first week, he seemed to not be totally comfortable and know what he was doing. This week, he seemed to be more understand what Rishi Sunak was like and how you fight against him and where you kind of get him at. But on a more policy side, I think that Labour clearly knew what they wanted to fight against Liz Truss with. It was all mortgages, mortgages. She's put up your mortgage, created this mace, rah, 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 rah. That's a bit more difficult with Rishi Sunak because obviously we know in the summer leadership campaign, he was warning about Liz Truss saying all these things our mistakes. So how do you kind of bind him to that stuff? But I think you speak to Labour people, they're dusting off their folders, which they had pre the Somerset, summer leadership contest when they thought that it would be Rishi Sunak who took over next. You start saying, oh, he's the man who put up your taxes to the highest level in 70 years. He's the reason we've got slow growth. You kind of dust off those attacks. But I think Labour needs to work out what are they going to do if, what are their economic plans on cuts and where do they go? Do you, you know, do you say Labour at the next election saying, well, we will mirror the Tories on total spend? Would you, are we going to mirror them on cuts? And I think that's where there are big questions. You know, we've heard Rachel Reeves saying, well, we would prioritise, I think it's the police, the NHS, maybe education schools. Uh, but they're obviously tricky decisions that the government's going to have to make. And it's less obvious what Labour, how they respond to it and how they deal with it. What is the mood in the opposition right now? Clearly, at Labour Party conference, lots of us were there. It was very upbeat. What, how, how has that shifted now that Rishi Sunak's taken over? Well, I think the Labour conference was, I mean, everyone was high as a kite, uh, not literally, um, because <laughs> they felt you that it, it was like, <laughs> they felt it was like 96 and we we're on the verge of 97. And this is how most people must have felt like with Tony Blair. And you just contrasted that Labour conference to any of the recent ones, you know, you suddenly had all these businesses exhibiting on trade stands. And, you know, the difference in the Corbyn years between a Tory party conference and a Labour conference, it was like going to totally different things. They were so different. Whereas this year, you know, and sometimes we go to the same places for different parties, you know, Manchester hosts both of them and you're going to the same thing and you're just like, this is the same building, but it just feels like a whole nother world. Whereas this year they felt much more similar they both felt quite professional. Labour Party didn't have the fights. It was the Tories who were having all the fights. And I think that that really did G up the Labour side. They felt that they had some sensible policies. They weren't promising the world. They had a few things that were just going to hammer home and hammer home. And so I think it was always obvious that they were always going to have some sort of come down from that back to reality and that, yeah, the election's not next week and they're not going to win literally every seat in the country and the Tories reduced to a rump of 12 MPs. Uh, and so I think people are now readjusting. I think that there was might have been a slight over-adjustment that when Rishi Sunak came in, people thought, oh, no, he's going to get this massive poll bounce. You know, we're going to be back to trailing in the polls again. And I think the reality is somewhere in between that, yeah, they have to readjust how they attack the Tory party, but they still do have quite a comfortable lead in the polls. And, yeah, you might not be able to stick 
all the problems on the economy that you could have done really easily with Liz Truss onto Rishi Sunak. But I still think that people are going to be really annoyed when they come to the end of their mortgage deals and they see them going up. And I think that they will think, "Mm, I'm really struggling to make ends meet. You don't have to be on the breadline to now suddenly be thinking, I'm just not going to afford to do anything apart from pay off my mortgage and buy food. You know, people were suddenly thinking in their minds, oh my goodness, this is not what I, (laughs) this is not the calculation I thought when I was going to get a house. And I think that the difference between Lystra and Mishy Sunak and that, I think people do just think this is the toys that have caused that. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting because one of the effects of that Liz Truss quasi quartang mini budget was that people now blame almost everything on the government as opposed to perhaps the narrative that we've gone on, well, interest rates are going up, the Fed's just hiked interest rates a, a long way. We're assuming that the Bank of England is just hiking interest rates as we speak. So, you know, but it will now be all down to the government, even when, you know, it is quite a lot the international situation, what's going on in Ukraine. So they have managed to own that. I think one of the difficulties for Labour, though, is that Rishi Sunak's proved himself quite adept as Chancellor of taking Labour ideas and, uh, you know, rubbishing them, then adopting them. We saw that on the windfall tax, not windfall tax, energy profits levy. And I think one of the problems is that where Labour have been able to promise, you know, more, te- you know, more nurses, more this, more that, it's come from saying, well, we'll close this loop up, we'll do this, we'll do that. The danger for them is when they get towards the election, they discover all of those have already been taken by, you know, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak to close what they see as their big fiscal hole. So the idea is, you know, so maybe a bit bigger windfall tax for a bit longer. But a lot of those uh, what seem to be quite politically attractive fruit because there were known to be taxes that people didn't think they'd pay uh, are now unavailable to pay for, you know, bits of nice spending plans that Labour wanted to go into the next election with. Yeah, and I think that I think we're going to see that at the autumn statement in a couple of weeks. Labour already think that it's probable or quite likely that they might nick the non-DOMS idea, which think, is which is yeah. the latest idea that Labour is saying, how would you, you know, they said they'd reverse the 45p mm. and that would be how you pay mm. for doubling medical places to get loads mm. of nurses, et cetera, et cetera. When that got taken away, it was like, how do we fund this? Mm. And it's like, we do non-DOMS. Mm. And I think, yeah, the next thing would be non-DOMS be gone and they have to think of a new way to kind of show that they're balancing the books. And Jill, uh, at our event on Monday, the B word came up uh, again. Is Brexit going to be a battleground again now? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily be a battleground between the parties, because although Keir Starmer finally ended his sort of years of Trappist silence by making a speech in the summer about Labour's new slogan of making Brexit work, I still think Labour thinks that this is not a great argument for him, though public opinion does seem to be moving. We now have you know, quite a distinct shift when you ask people, was Brexit mistake? Was it handled badly? even should we rejoin the EU, that does still all to be there. But I think that's, I don't think Labour will want to be uh, rebadging itself as the party of Remain. I think the area where it's going to cause difficulties is not Labour Conservative, but within the Conservative Party, where Rishi Sunak has some really quite difficult uh, things coming up. He's you know, still got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill uh, in committee stage in the Lords, 
I still got the ERG watching him on that. We've got the collapse of the executive in Northern Ireland last week. So does he want to negotiate a deal with the EU? Could he get that through his party? Still a big question mark if he did. And he's also got the sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg Memorial retained EU law bill, where last week we had that bizarre spectacle of Jacob Rees-Mogg already having been resigned as his you know, flagship legislation came into Parliament, having to speak about it from the back benches in a slightly surreal moment because he was no longer uh, no longer the Secretary of State. Um, but does Rishi Sunak really, really press ahead with something that will require loads of civil servants, uh, be really quite make work? And a lot of businesses will say, actually, is just going to make the business environment a whole lot more uncertain over the next year or so. And down the line, risks the EU revisiting the trade and cooperation agreement. So I think really interesting internal conservative things. But most of Brexit has actually been about rows inside the Conservative Party. And I think that's set to continue. And Rhys, back to where we started on the podcast, how tricky is immigration policy for Labour? Yes, it is. It, it is tricky. I mean, it, the immigration policy of the Home Office has, more broadly, has proved uh, difficult for both sides of the political divide. Um, it was a Labour Home Secretary, uh, Herbert Morrison, in the forties, who described uh, Home Office's uh, corridors paved with dynamite, reflecting the scandals that were brought to its leaders' uh, feet. Um, and uh, on immigration specifically, you know, Labour have been. Uh, playing their cards quite close to their chest, understandably. We saw at Prime Minister's questions um, this week that they're clearly uh, more comfortable critiquing, making hay with the problems in the system than they are in uh, uh, sort of setting out a soul on, on some of the big questions that uh, will be important in the round to the next election, whether that's on um, immigration uh, uh, and its role in, in, in the economy or on uh, fixing the problems in the asylum uh, system. But there are a couple of areas I think Labour could have more political space. I think, Jill, you were absolutely right earlier to talk about the right to work for asylum question. Um, that feels like it, there is potential for more consensus um, and is maybe a bit of a race on, on that, for example. And I think one of the really interesting things that are going back to this is is Suella Braverman may have uh, resigned over the forwarding an email, but there was a substantive policy row behind that within the Conservative Party about whether they would actually commit to higher levels of migration, which would then allow the OBR to score higher growth numbers in the forecast, uh, or whether they would you know, maintain that they could still revert to the net migration in the tens of thousands and suffer the sort of lower growth consequences, but be able to show that they were being tough. Because one of the things that's really interesting about the post-Brexit migration regime and the points-based system is how many non-EU citizens are coming into the UK that we've maintained net migration pretty much the same level as we did while we're EU members. But the composition has changed radically. Now, you say that's policy success. We bring in lots of healthcare people and lots of IT people, uh, lots of non-Europeans. So if you wanted a more level playing field there, it's delivered that. But it's a really interesting battle, again, within the Conservative Party about what's the right approach on overall legal migration as well as the uh, dealing with asylum seekers. John, a final question for you. What do you make uh, the the approach that Sunak's clearly decided at least initially to take in terms of attacking Labour is a focus on sort of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, which of course Keir Starmer was a part of. Do you think that's that's going to be the line going forward or 
and how sh- how should Labour respond? We've seen that Sunak keeps using these lines. We've seen that both Prime Minister's questions, he seemed to have two lines of attack on literally any topic of anything. Anything Keir Starmer said, the answer was, well, you support, you served under Jeremy Corbyn or you supported Remain. And the first week, Tory MPs like, yay, great, this is a great line of attack. Yeah, let's go for him on this one again. You saw the Tory party sending out fundraiser emails with the same lines in them. You see the lines of attack that go out to Tory MPs to use on the media. And it's all of that. But then the second time he did it this week, it just seemed slightly desperate. And it was like, gosh, is there nothing else in that folder you've got in front of you? It's just these two lines. I think you do start to look a bit ridiculous. Obviously, Labour going to go all over the shop. You know, the first week, I can't remember what Keir Starmer was, I think it was the economy and taxes and how they put up your mortgage. This week, it was immigration. Obviously, Keir Starmer's going to go whatever topic all over the place where he thinks the government's kind of most vulnerable. And I think if your answer to everything is Jeremy Corbyn, who's not even in the Labour Party at the moment, and Brexit, I think it starts to look a bit more and more desperate and I don't think it's quite so successful. We'll have to wait and see what uh, what Sunak does next week. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Jill Rutter, Reese Klein and to John Stevens. And great to have you all with us. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And please do leave us a review. We are keen on record-breaking poll ratings too. And there's some great podcasts landing on our sister channel, IFG Live, including a recording of our Wednesday event on public appointments with a panel including Sue Gray. Yes, her. And that civil service cuts paper we discussed is out now and available to read at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can also find our latest commentary and analysis. Well, it looks like we've got through another week without a leadership contest or a change of prime minister. But if life is quieter in the Westminster jungle... The Matt Hancock Jungle Show is just beginning down under. Have a good weekend, everyone. Bye.